0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives.
1: Victor really stole my thunder because my case is also a case of Takayasu <laughs> involving only the pulmonary artery. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, this case will be a little bit more <clears throat> kind of bread and butter um but uh just uh a more uh, more of a case uh that um emphasizes the importance of um you know keeping an open mind and not anchoring on a diagnosis. But this is a sixty two-year-old female who uh, I met when she was hospitalized um for uh volume overload and congestion. She had a came in a history of sickle cell anemia while she was followed at a a practice that was outside of our purview. And she had a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. She was hospitalized with uh, dyspnea, lower extremity swelling, and she had had a marked uh, reduction in her functional capacity over the previous two years. And she was um, getting lightheaded with walking as well. Her past medical history was notable for sickle cell anemia. As I mentioned, she obtained uh, monthly exchange transfusions. And again, she had this diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. She didn't know too, too much about uh, the ways in which she was diagnosed with it, but she knew that she was on Rio Siguat um, and she came in on that medication. She also had a history of atrial fibrillation and hypertension. Um, you know, in talking with her, it doesn't seem like she had had a right heart catheterization um, prior to her initiation of Rio Siguat. On physical exam, she had an elevated JVP. She had a prominent CV wave. Her rhythm was irregular, irregular. She had abdominal distension, right-sided heart failure symptoms with two to three plus, pitting edema of the lower extremities as well. Uh, Here's her EKG. Uh, Her EKG demonstrated atrial fibrillation with a moderate ventricular response. Um, Notable absences on her EKG were absences of um, right ventricular hypertrophy. Um, And again, we couldn't make much comment on her um, left atrial size or enlargement based off of her uh, rhythm of atrial fibrillation. Um, Here's her transthoracic echocardiogram. Um, Image on the left shows that she has severe left atrial enlargement. She's an AFib in this study as well. Um, she had moderate TR on the right side, which is her RV inflow view, um, shown here is her peristernal short axis view. There's some subtle flattening of the septum there, um, you might kind of have to squint your eyes for it, but, uh, and that's at the mid, uh, papillary level and shown on the apical four chamber view on the right, uh, she has severe biatrial enlargement that, floating structure in the right atrium is her venous catheter for her monthly exchange transfusions. Um, And her RV um, is mildly dilated, although compared to uh, her RA seems relatively small, and it's mostly annular in terms of the dilation, and her left atrium is severely enlarged, um, almost the size of her LV, if not um, similar in size. So uh, here's her right heart catheterization, so her RA pressure. And this was um, after some days of diuresis and then we were limited by uh, a progressive AKI. Um, Again, she's an afib, afib, a A flutter in this study. So um, somewhat difficult to determine kind of base of the A wave, but her RA pressure was extremely high. Um, Looks like it was kind of 25 or so. Here's her RB pressure. Um, kind of topping out at close to 60 over 20 with an EDP uh, similar kind of in the mid-20s or so her pulmonary artery pressure as well a PASP of about 63 64 a mean PA pressure in the mid 40s and here's her uh, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure which demonstrated a wedge pressure of uh, uh, 34 or 35 or so. Her thermodilution cardiac output was 6.5, her thermodilution index was 3.1, her transpulmonary gradient was 10, and her PVR was only uh, 1.5. And so this was during her hospital stay on some IV diuretics. Um, <clears throat> she had been maintained on Rio Siguat because we just didn't really know much about her uh, physiology at, at, uh, at that point in time. Um, and so after we uh, got her right heart cath and her numbers, uh, we stopped the Rio Siguat, and um, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. What happened was we we we, uh, we continued IV diuresis, but after stopping the Rio Siguat, she actually developed quite a bit of um, progressive and kind of profound AKI um, uh, with IV diuresis, more so than what what, what was occurring before. And um, you know potentially there was some thought that. She was having some benefit in terms of maybe potentially some um, uh, improvement of uh, renal venous blood flow with the riociguat, and potentially stopping it quickly kind of um, uh, could have uh, uh, initiated some of that AKI. Needless to say, she required uh, a little bit of support from an inotropic perspective, mostly from the, for the right side of the heart. Um, with Milrenone, which was <clears throat> quite successful in improving her ability to diurese, and she had a robust diuretic response. Um, she was ultimately discharged on a loop diuretic and an SGLT2 inhibitor. So, she maintained clinical stability after. Can I ask a
0: question? Sure. Where did her hemoglobin
1: go? But... Um, it was it was on the lower side. Um, but with the tr- exchange transfusion, she kind of was 9 to 10. And... Yeah. Um, She was re-hospitalized three years later for heart failure. She had been able to maintain relative stability on loop diuretic and SGLT2 inhibitor, Um, had some issues with atrial fibrillation, but outside of that, no clinical decompensations until about three years later, in which um, uh, she was hospitalized, a right heart cath was repeated, uh, demonstrating an RA pressure of 18, a PA pressure of 63 over 30 with a mean of 44 and a wedge of 26. Her index was 2.3 by thermodilution, and she had a PVR of 3.9. So as compared to her prior right heart cath, her PVR looked a little bit higher, this time around three years later. um, She's developed a little bit more of a a, a transpulmonary gradient and um, may have progressed from that isolated um, you know, pulmonary venous hypertension to more of a pre- and post-capillary um, uh, hypertension phenomenon. Um, she was initiated on sacubitril valsartan and spironolactone. And that's kind of how she is now, quasi-stable. And we are evaluating her for clinical trials of combined pre- and post-capillary pH, um, PA denervation and levocimendin are on the possible um, dockets for her. Um, But I brought this case up because she obviously, this patient obviously had multiple, uh, had some risk factors for pulmonary hypertension for sure, risk factors for PAH given her sickle cell anemia and the multiple ways in which sickle cell can cause PAH. Um, And potentially there was some anchoring uh, bias based off of her history of sickle cell, um, but also had developed independently of that, multiple other risk factors, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and I I didn't mention she was um, obese as well. Um, and her atria de- uh, developed quite a bit of remodeling in the setting of her um, atrial fibrillation. Uh, it seems that um, that alone was contributing a lot to her left-sided um, heart failure as well. Um, but uh, a, kind of a, an interesting case, again, one where the hemodynamics really tell, uh, tell the true story. And... Um, um, I thought uh, an, uh, an interesting case just to bring us back, similar to Dr. Raza's, of, of the importance of, um, of looking at invasive hemodynamics to kind of get a true uh, sense of, of physiology. A lot of times in these patients, as they're getting older, they don't live in a vacuum and they develop multiple risk factors, and so it's important to, uh, to always take a look. You
0: know, it's really interesting that, that
1: her cardiac output wasn't higher,
0: right? Like a very, I don't see that many sickle cell patients, but. Many of the sickle cell patients I've seen, they develop basically high output failure. Like, their wedge is high because their cardiac output looks at, lives at 10, 12, you know, whatever, because they're anemic. So I find it really interesting, yeah. like, how she developed such severe, you know, both left heart and pulmonary vascular disease with a cardiac output living in the normal range as a sickle cell patient.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, I, we're still learning a little bit about her history of, uh, of sickle cell or if it was, you know, it had been managed well from a um, exchange transfusion perspective that she never had such severe uh, anemia that she never developed that high output state. And then she was just kind of developed these comorbidities that kind of uh, uh, tipped her into left heart failure and pH. But yeah, we were surprised by that as well. And we have a fair amount of our patients with sickle cell that come through our Hefpef clinic with high, high output failure as well. I think the other interesting thing to think about
2: in a sickle cell patient is does she have a history of recurrent acute chest syndrome, and how many sickle crises does she have, right? Because the chest syndromes are associated with increased thrombotic risk, and chronic clot have been described in patients with sickle cell anemia. So it'd be something to look for to make sure she doesn't have some degree of obstruction that might benefit from a BPA or something like that. Rare in a sickle cell patient, but definitely something that happens. Um, And then the fact that she's 62 years old and has sickle cell anemia itself is pretty interesting, right? And in that sort of somewhat controversial initial description of pH in sickle cell anemia, right, ultimately it is the older patients that survive into older age that are the ones that truly develop the vasculopathy where they act like group one PAH, where you would want to maybe think about PAH-directed therapies. But... Such a complicated patient population because of all the different ways they can develop PH. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, and I uh, um, agree. We did look into the uh, with the nuclear scan uh, to just kind of cover our bases to see if she had any VQ, uh, you know, yeah. uh, mismatch, especially with yeah. her
2: line that's their right. chronic. Right. Exactly. exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, right.
2: Um- Oh, sorry. go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, I was going to ask if she ever had a cardiac MRI, you know, her echo was really striking. Did she have like, you know, looked like maybe she had some LVH and like with all of her transfusions, like, did she ever have a high ferritin and evidence of like iron deposition disease within the myocardium? And then you also mentioned that she was obese. And I know that we've certainly seen some patients who especially have a lot of pericardial or epicardial fat that they get sort of like that peri- increased pericardial restraint and get that restrictive hemodynamic picture, which it looks like she had, especially on that first right heart cath, those tracings that you show with like the nice prominent Y descent and so on.
1: No, that's great. Those are great points. So she did ultimately get the MRI. Um, and, uh, she did not have any evidence of <clears throat> hemochromatosis or, you know, given those kind of owl eye biatrial enlargement, we just wanted to, you know, um, to make sure as well is that she didn't have a, a cardiac amyloidosis as well, um, and, which she did not. Um, but it's a great point with regard to her obesity. She does have an epicardial fat pad. There's probably some intraventricular dependence that was definitely present on that first echo as well. Um, she would benefit from weight loss and potentially um, that uh, physiology may improve with um, therapies to improve her, uh, improve her weight. All great points, though. Ravi, I'm going to ask you a question that always perplexes me when I'm when I'm in the wards taking care of uh, patients on the cardiology floor. Why do you think some patients like this, that are clearly hypervolemic by exam, by hemodynamics, you tried your them and you can't? <laughs> and uh, and I found very interesting that that you chose milrinone when the cardiac output was still kind of within a very reasonable kind of normal range. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think <clears throat> I think in her and in many of these patients, the kidney is underappreciated in terms of um, its a, its um, overall health uh, with the ability to diuresis. And in with her, I, I think that there was some renal malperfusion that occurred um, after stopping after stopping the Rio Siguat. You know, there's this uh, of therapies to treat heart failure. Um, there are very few that have shown benefit to kidney function. A lot of times we have to accept in some of our heart failure therapies that the kidneys may take a hit. One of the therapies that does uh, benefit the kidneys is succubitril valsartan And um is a compound that can dilate the afferent uh, arterial of the, of the glomerular bed. And that uh, dilation I think improves overall renous, venous, re- renal uh, blood flow. Uh, potentially something like that was happening with the uh, SCG stimulator and that when we took it away, the renal arteries kind of clamped down, um, uh, causing this AKI with diuresis and she needed some other inodilator to kind of improve that. But I think there's some crosstalk there with the, the renal system that is underappreciated with our patients who have a lot of diuretic resistance.
0: Great. All right. Thank you. Well. We've reached the end of our program. I, I think I want to um, just start out by thanking the faculty. We we had a number of you know really wonderful talks, a lot of great discussion, and really appreciate the expertise that everyone brought to this. And and thank you all for taking such a big chunk of your Saturday to to be with us. So um, so I I really enjoyed today and, and appreciate you all. And I'll let. Mike, say some final comments I as
2: agree. Well. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Val, for uh, co-hosting this with me. And yeah, thank you for coming and spending the day with us. I also really enjoyed this. The faculty you all did a great job. I really, as usual, learned a lot from all of you. So thank you.
0: You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC and Total CME, LLC, and is part of our Minute CE Curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.